0: So today, after our seven weeks in the book of Revelation, uh, we're turning back to our series in the book of Luke. We've been working our way slowly and steadily through this wonderful book. And as a reminder, the the book of Luke was written by a physician named Luke. It has some of the most uh, difficult Greek in the the New Testament, or that it, it's closest to some classical Greek, uh, but uh, you can see that the person who wrote it was, was learned in a way that some of the other authors in the New Testament uh, weren't. And of course, Luke also has a special concern for the, the weak, the, the marginalized, the sick. Uh, but another aspect, if you read introductions on the book of Luke, uh, they point out that he has a lot of teaching on money. What's the role of money in the life of a believer? And so where we're taking up, picking up today in Luke chapter 16, we see Luke uh, entering into that discussion again of how do we think about worldly wealth, about money, about about human resources. So if you have your, your Bible with you, uh, you can turn to Luke 16. If you don't have your Bible, the, the passage is also printed in the bulletin. You can get it online as well. Uh, just Google the passage or get a... Bible app like ESV Bible app or the U version app and you'll be able to see it there. So again, Luke chapter 1 or sorry, Luke chapter 16 beginning in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that his that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now this passage, this parable in the book of Luke, is probably one of the more difficult passages in Luke. And if you read commentaries and and look at literature on this passage, they always say, we don't know what this is saying, or that you'll see multiple interpretations of this passage. And so at first... If you were to look at that and read the the tomes of literature trying to figure out exactly what this is saying, you might say, well, maybe as just an ordinary person, I can't really understand the Bible. Maybe the Bible's not clear. Maybe I need to look to other places, other avenues to find true wisdom, true instruction. But of course, there's nothing wrong with the Bible Uh, If the problem and the reason we don't fully understand is really with us, the problem is in our ability to understand. And J.C. Ryle, uh, when he was commenting on this passage, was really helpful. He said, we might reasonably expect that a book written by inspiration, as the Bible is, will contain things hard to understand. The fault lies not in the book, but in our feeble understanding. If we learn nothing else from the passage before us, let us learn humility. And I think that he's right, that when we come to passages that are a little bit harder to wrap our head around, that the first lesson that we learn is humility, of of realizing that we can't always perfectly understand. But at the same time, I think that, that what we can take away for our lives in a practical way is actually clear in this passage. And there's a famous uh, quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the, the doctrinal statement for the Presbyterian Church. And it says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded, I love that word propounded, and opened in some place of Scripture or other, that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Now that is a mouthful. But really what they're getting at is a really profound point that when we come to passages of Scripture or books in the Bible that are hard, sometimes we can get distracted by the things that we don't understand. But yet God is faithful as we study his word And so even though we may not understand everything, we can still draw out the the details that we need for salvation, the things that are necessary to be known to to live and apply it in our lives. And it's no different for this passage here in Luke. And so with all of that in mind, we're going to dive into this parable. So first we're going to look actually at the parable, what it means, and then we'll turn to the application Uh, what it means for us today. So let's start by looking at the parable. And you'll notice that Jesus is telling a story about a dishonest manager. And it's interesting that he calls him a dishonest manager. Um, And he essentially has control as a manager over the estate of a rich man, his boss. And the, the manager gets word through the grapevine, that, the manage, that this manager is mishandling his possessions, uh, is being dishonest with his wealth. And in some ways, you can tell that the manager, the, the rich man, or sorry, rather, the, the boss, the rich man, uh, was not really doing a very good job of being aware because he hears through the grapevine what is happening. And so he, he goes to the manager, and we see in verse 2, he says, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And so this is what, I mean, some, probably some of you have experienced at different points in your life where the boss walks in and says, you're going to be done at the end of the day, clean out your desk, you're through. But there's this short period of time where the the manager still has control of the books, he hasn't handed in all of his files yet to the rich man. And so he, he starts to reflect on his situation, how he's going to, to face unemployment. And he says, well, I'm, I'm too unwilling to dig. I'm not going to do manual labor. And I'm not willing to beg that he's too proud to go out and beg. And so he ha- says, well, I have to think of some scheme So in verse 4, he says, I have decided what I do so that when I'm removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. So going on in verse 15, it says, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so what is the manager doing here? Well, you could say that he's falsifying documents. He's cooking the books. He's, he's changing how much people owe his master before he turns the book in. And Presumably, there wouldn't be an easy way to verify that he had changed it, and so he wouldn't get in, in trouble. Of course, if he completely eliminated the debt, people might catch on to it, but the person owing 100 measures of oil, it says, he cuts it in half to 50. The person owing 100 measures of wheat suddenly owes 80, and he hands in the book. And I love how Phil Reichen comments on this. He says, the master's debtors had no reason to suspect that the manager was acting dishonestly. Everything seemed perfectly above board. After all, the manager was the creditors personal representative. And if he wanted to reduce their debt, that was his business. They were just grateful to have the books fixed in their favor. So grateful that they would feel personally indebted to the manager he would have made friends with his master's money. Later, when, his job, when he was out of his job and needed a place to stay, he could ask them for a favor in return. And so it's really a brilliant plan to be able to, to use his master's money to, to make friends, to have other people then indebted to him as the one who reduced their debt rather than just indebted to the person who had originally lent them money. And some commentaries try to then say well maybe the dishonest manager wasn't being all that dishonest. They say well maybe he was just forgiving his commission on the debt or maybe he was just forgiving the interest that was already illegal under Jewish law. But I think that the simplest the most straightforward interpretation here is that he was doing something illegal In modern times, the Securities and Exchange Commission would have convicted him of the crime of trying to cook the master's books, to try to work the finances in his own favor without getting caught. But of course, it looks like in the parable he gets away with it, and you would expect that the master, finding out, would have been furious, would have been angry, would have tried to take him to to court. But look at verse 8. Jesus says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And I think that we can understand that to some degree. I mean, think of the number of movies and TV shows that are about people being really clever in stealing other people's stuff. Uh, You can think Ocean's Eleven, White Collar, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, the list could go on, that there's something that we can appreciate where we say, I don't think that is right that they're stealing, but I really appreciate the the cleverness that they're able to pull off this heist. And I think that this is also what the, the master here thought. I don't like what he did, but man, you have to give the guy credit. He really was pretty smart in being able to set himself up in a good position after I fire him. A strange kind of respect. And so that's the parable, but now let's turn and start to think a little bit more about the application, what it means for us today. And thankfully, we're not left just with the parable, because Jesus does give us some interpretation of it and what follows. And I think the first thing that we need to pay attention to on the side of application is that Jesus doesn't want us to cheat and steal, He's not holding up the dishonest manager because he wants us ourselves to be dishonest. Uh, he doesn't want us even to be like the master who's commending somebody for doing something that's dis- dishonest. That we should love truth, we shouldn't steal, we should love the 8th the commandment, the ninth commandment. And I think that this is what Jesus is actually getting at down in verse 10. He says, One who is faithful... And very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth. And we'll talk in a minute about that phrase unrighteous wealth. Who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have been faithful in that which is another's. Or sorry if you have not been faithful in that which is another's. Who will give you that which is your own? And so. Jesus is saying that we can learn from the dishonest manager by antithesis. He's saying that he was dishonest with little and dishonest with much. And that by contrast, then, we're called to be honest with little and honest with much. And an example of this is actually the way that the process of ordination works in the Presbyterian church. Uh, when somebody's looking toward vocational ministry, uh, they're required to do an internship in a local church before they can uh, go through the ordination process. And that's what Jonathan Hatt is, is doing with us here at Hope. But in the past, when I was at other churches before planting Hope Church, I remember some interns where you kind of had a feeling that they wanted to be the senior pastor immediately. And that they thought, well, I'm really above, you know, setting up chairs or doing small administrative tasks, that I want to do the the great and important things of ministry, that this is kind of beneath me. Uh, But of course, being lazy in the small things, in reality, actually disqualifies you for the big things. And that's always been something I've been so thankful for Jonathan. Uh, because he is really diligent in the small things. I call him all the time, a couple times a week, hey, Jonathan, I need your help with this, or think through this, and he's always willing and says, oh, give me 10 minutes, and then I'll I'll read that thing that you need me to read over. And so there's this, this diligence in small things to then be able to do bigger things. But I think that this applies to all of us as well, because people say, well, if I had millions of dollars, if I won the lottery, I would give money to my family, I would support ministries, I would support missions overseas, I would do great things if I only had the money to do it. But of course, we all have heard stories of people winning the lottery, winning millions of dollars, and then within a couple months or a year, it's all gone, they've completely squandered it. And part of the reason for that is that there can be, is the case where they weren't diligent with when little things that they had before they won the lottery. And so how then would you expect them to be diligent with a vast amount of money and to be able to use that wisely? And so the question then is, what does it look like for you, for for me, to be diligent, to be honest, to be faithful in small things here and now? And these are some questions that you can ask yourself that if you're unemployed, How can you wake up every day and be diligent with your time and your energy? If you are underemployed and you feel like you're not doing the things that you want to do or you're gifted to do, how can you do what may feel like a menial task to the glory of God? If you don't have a lot of money, if you wish you had more money, how can you budget and use what you do have in a way that's wise, trusting the Lord for the future. And so again, Jesus is saying in in this way, don't be like the dishonest manager. Be diligent, be faithful, be honest in little things and in big things. But at the same time, Jesus both uses the dishonest manager as a negative example, but then also as a positive example, that there's a sense in which he does want us to be like the dishonest manager. And it's not in being dishonest, but in a different way. And this is what Jesus is saying in verse 8. So look there in your Bible. He says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So you see what Jesus is saying that the people who are obsessed with the world, worldly people, can actually be more diligent, more shrewd, more careful with the things that they have to accomplish their purposes than believers are with the resources that that we have. And again, J.C. Ryle says... The zeal of men of business encompassing sea and land to get earthly treasures may well reprove the slackness and indolence of believers about treasures in heaven. And as an example of this, I, I think of the East India Trading Company. I was reading an article about them uh, a few months ago, and it was really fascinating. Um, they were active between 1600 and 18. 74. Uh, they were a British joint stock company, and they wielded an, an outrageous amount of power and influence, especially in India and Southeast Asia. Uh, they had their own army. They warred against China in the Opium Wars. Uh, they were influential in spreading race-based slavery in the world, uh, and they they were brutal. They were effective. Uh, They were powerful, and they were part of the spread of European colonialism throughout the world in that period of time. But then it's interesting that at the exact same time, Europe also saw the birth of the missions movement, at least in European Christianity at that time, where people were awakened to the fact that they needed to actually be carrying the gospel to people who hadn't heard it yet. Uh, Men like William Carey, others bringing the the gospel to India, to to China, to Southeast Asia. But really the the sad reality of history is that often the East India Trading Company was better at doing what they were doing than the Christian missionaries were at what they were doing. Um, And the reason is what Jesus says, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so the East India Trading Company was willing to expend a lot, to risk a lot, to to reach new markets and to do what was necessary to accomplish their purposes. But then so often Christians were probably pouring their money into the East India Trading Company, not into missions, uh, unwilling to, to risk in the way that was necessary to see the gospel go Forward, And, of course, what we're left with is so often a legacy of European colonialism in the world rather than the legacy of the, the love and service of the gospel that should have flowed out. And related to this, I, I was talking to a friend a while back who is involved in marketing, and he was telling me that, that one of the best ways for him to sell products is to go door-to-door, and I was really shocked by this because I said, because you think of in the, you know, the 50s knocking on doors with vacuum cleaners to sell them. And I said, well, knocking on doors doesn't work today, does it? And he's like, oh, well, not as well as it did then, but it still works. If you really need to sell something, he says, I'll knock on hundreds of doors and people yell at me and they run me off their lawn. And you know, so I'll get run off the lawn by a hundred people, but two or three will listen and maybe one will buy something and that's great because then I've made a sell, and that's really all that it that it takes. And as I reflected on what he was saying, I don't think necessarily that door-to-door evangelism is the way to do ministry in Garnet Valley and Chads Ford, but I was humbled by the fact that he was willing to go to to be run off of lawns, to be made fun of, to be to be mistreated, to sell things that he probably would say he didn't even care about <laughs> uh, to, to sell things that didn't have actual eternal value but then I have the, the gospel, the power of God for salvation and the moment somebody says something unkind or is, is rude to me, I just immediately want to retreat uh, that the that's what Jesus says, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons Of light and that's why in verse 9 Jesus says make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwelling and this verse verse 9 is really the key to applying this parable Because it's where Jesus hits the the application. But look at that phrase, unrighteous wealth. We can't really understand what he's saying unless we figure out what that means. And it's translated slightly differently uh, in different translations. Uh, The old King James Version says, mammon of unrighteousness. And the NIV and the CSB says, worldly wealth. And all of those translations have value, but I actually think that worldly wealth probably captures it the best to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because what he's saying is that the dishonest manager used worldly wealth, the the wealth of this life, to make friends for his own purposes. But that we're called, as believers, to use worldly wealth, the, the things of this life, to make friends for kingdom purposes, for eternal purposes. And of course, we all have this worldly wealth to one degree or another. And that's why I think worldly wealth might be a better way of translating it than unrighteous wealth, because it's not necessarily a contrast between righteous wealth in this life and unrighteous wealth, but it's really saying that, that none of the wealth, none of the resources that we have in this world are what ultimately can provide life and happiness and hope. Um, but, at this, but also, it's not inherently wrong to use the money that we're entrusted with. Uh, we don't place our hope in it, but we use it in a way that's different from the world. And you say, well, what does this look like? Well, here are three practical examples of how this could apply. And the first is the support of missions in the world. I've mentioned this before, but I I know a man who made a lot of money as a corporate lawyer. And when he retired, instead of taking all of his money to pour it into himself and his own purpose, he took the worldly wealth that he had, put it in a fund that ...was intended and still supports church plants in the Philadelphia area. And so, worldly speaking, Hope Church would not exist without that fund. And so, in a way, he was able to use his worldly resources... ...to help us, Hope Church, make friends in Garnet Valley for the kingdom of God. It's, it's really amazing... But, of course, it's not just people who make a lot where that can be true. But this can be true in in smaller ways as well. But even a a college student uh, or a middle-class family could look at their budget and say, all right, we could cut one streaming service, because everybody now has about 15 streaming services. Uh, I'm going to cut one streaming service, give $10 a month to a missionary And you say, well, that wouldn't really do anything. What difference would that make? But if every single Christian gave $10 more uh, to missions, think of how many more missionaries the church would be able to send. Think of how many more churches would be able to, to be planted. And it's this idea of make for yourself, or make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So that's the first example. Here's another example that's related, and it's not just the support of missions, but of hospitality that we ourselves practice. That, I mean, if, for those who have been in business, you probably know the practice of whining and dining potential clients, uh, where you, you take them out to eat, um, and then hope that eventually they'll buy your product or, or make a, a deal with you. But biblical hospitality is different. You you pour out the resources that you have to serve others, to bring them into your life, not expecting something in return, but actually uh, expecting nothing in return. And even though this is hard during the pandemic, it's part of the the calling of biblical hospitality. But then here's the, the third example, service and mercy ministry. Because if you in, want to invest in something that will give a return on investment later, then invest in the stock market or invest in other places where you'll be able to actually get more from it. But if you take your money and, and you give it to a ministry that's providing food for somebody or clothing for somebody that, that's meeting really practical needs, you're not going to see an immediate return on investment. That it could almost seem foolish to the world, especially if you do it, as the Bible says, without sounding the trumpet before you so that your name ends up on the, the building. Uh, but, but no one knows, you don't get credit, you don't get return, why would we do this? And, it, and it's really what Jesus is saying, that we are making friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive us into the eternal dwelling. But also notice that that Jesus doesn't say, if it fails. But he says, when it fails. That worldly wealth, the resources of this world, will ultimately fail. And that's why it's unrighteous to put our ultimate trust and our ultimate reliance on the things of this life. But when it fails... Ultimately, when we go from this life to the next, who are we going to be with forever and eternity? Who's going to receive us into the eternal dwellings? And, and what Jesus is saying that, Lord willing, the people that you're going to meet at the, the gates of heaven are the people that, that you served, the people that, that, that came to faith through the missionaries that were supported, the, the people who were in your home that you never got anything Back from it, but it made a real difference from in your life. the people who were were clothed and, and fed without actually knowing where it came from at all that they are the ones who will welcome you into the eternal dwelling that that our eye is actually on to eternal investment, eternal priorities and looking not to the wealth of this world but to the wealth of, of Christ and you might say then, well where can you get? true value, true wealth, what really matters. And this is where the story of redemption is very different from this parable. Because in the parable we see the unrighteous manager and really the unrighteous master as well. But in the story of redemption, we have the the righteous Lord of the universe who actually enters into time in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, taking on himself a true human nature to to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death. And the way that we take hold of the riches of eternal life isn't through trying to make tons of money so that we can give it away to the poor so that God will be pleased with us. It's not through paying money in indulgences or trying to give tons of money to the church so that we can earn our way into salvation. That, that is, again, an unrighteous way of viewing the use of our, of our wealth. But the way that we take hold of true riches, true value, is by admitting our own spiritual poverty apart from Christ, is looking to, to Jesus alone for salvation. As we do that, as we experience true adoption, true hope, true life in him, then he becomes our master who will sustain us and hold us and that's why in the final verse of our text, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so that's really our, our prayer for all of us, that, that we would see our, our true master as God in Christ through the Spirit, to look to him first and foremost as the source of true life and true wealth. Let's pray.